Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. One hundred two point three FM Riverside and one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs. Okay, we're back now, and as we said earlier, we have uh, uh, Bob Cranmer. And uh, now, um, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I appreciate any opportunity to, to tell this story or answer questions. Uh, again, that's why I wrote the book. I need to tell this story. Yeah, get it out. and uh, uh, Quite interesting. Uh, I guess, you know, the, f- the first thing that... Uh, that I found was interesting is is that you have a, a background kind of different than what we hear about with a lot of people and uh, so you uh, uh, wanted to tell us just a little bit about your background so that people kind of know where you're coming from. Uh, yeah, I certainly that that is it is somewhat unique and that's why I spend uh, a number of chapters in the beginning outlining who I am because I think that does add a le- level of credibility to the story some paranormal um, aficionados get a little bit frustrated with that because they want to get right into the story. But I think it is important to, first and foremost, make it clear that, you know, my wife and I were never, you know, we were never interested in anything like this, never had any experience with it. You know, I saw the movie The Exorcist when I was a kid and, you know, probably at one time saw the Amityville Horror. But beyond that, um, my wife and I really... um, had never dealt with anything like this. Um, so again, my, my background is I, I grew up in this little town right outside of Pittsburgh, um, went on to be a, um, uh, commissioned in the, uh, in the United States Army as a military intelligence officer, uh, spent uh, about eight, eight and a half years in the military. We decided that uh, 
we we wanted to uh, provide our kids with somewhat of a more normal, stable lifestyle. So we we left the military and we moved home to Pittsburgh. Uh, whereupon I uh, uh, went to work for AT and T and um, then subsequently got involved in local politics, my local town politics, and very quickly um, experienced somewhat of a meteoric rise and ended up in a few years being chairman of the Allegheny County Commissioners. And Allegheny County uh, is the county which holds the city of Pittsburgh. It's the second largest county in, in Pennsylvania, uh, 1.3 million people. So uh, I was chairman of the board and very responsible position and um, very well known to this day, even though I've been out of office for 14 years, um, going on 15 years now, I'm still very well known in the community. And I think so many people were very surprised that I would come out with a book like this. Um, it, um, but, but what it did do was give me access uh, to a lot of media right away. Former county commissioner says his house was infested by a demon for so many years. Um, I also uh, attracted, uh, because of my notoriety, I guess at the time, the Diocese of Pittsburgh, the bishop, Bishop Bishop Worrell at the time, who's now a cardinal of the church in Washington, D.C., in the archdiocese there. Um, they assigned a team of priests to work with uh, my family and I. So. Um, it, it does have all, you know, um, the aspects, I believe, of credibility. The diocese uh, continues to stand beside me, or I should say behind this book, stating that it is 100% credible, and they verify, certify their involvement in the story. And um, uh, so that's, uh, that's who I am. <laughs> I was going to say that... Uh it's probably also put a burden on you somewhat being uh, in politics and coming out with this book or this or the story about this. Uh, well, politics is still my business. Um, government is my business. Uh, I mean, as many former uh, political types, you come away from political office with a lot of contacts and a lot of you know, credibility and so on. So I worked for some government relations firms for a number of years and then uh, about six years ago decided I would open my own firm. So yes, government lobbying um, is my uh, is my business now. And I, and I was concerned, you know, if all of a sudden people viewed me as some kind of a kook. They haven't uh, to date. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I know the the, the local uh, Pittsburgh Post Gazette um, this week. They're 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 doing a very hard look at the book, and I believe they're going to really attack it here soon. Uh, but nonetheless, the the diocese uh, uh, stands with me, and I stand by the story. So we'll see what happens. Well, yeah, you have to you have to do what's right for you, right? And, and follow through. It does have some controversial parts, pieces in it. I mean, it deals with some controversial issues, I think, that uh, can get people worked up. I mean, first and foremost is is the message of just the fact that good and evil exist. God and the devil are real. And that is the message of this book. And I think a lot of people don't want to deal with that. 
And when you read the book, it leaves you in a position of really having to make a decision about what you believe or don't believe. And I think that's made some people uncomfortable. And um, but nonetheless, that's the message of the book. Yeah. How how did that work with with your own uh, personal friends and uh, family or or people that uh, you were in the military or even uh, politics with? Um, when they came over, did you avoid having them over, or how? how oh, to the house? Yeah. Well, you know, for a number of years, well over ten years, we lived in the house, and <clears throat> the paranormal activity one was was private. Uh, we didn't broadcast it, um, but for years we thought we we just and I put that in you know parentheses or. We just lived in a haunted house. I mean, um, we had regular paranormal activity, but for so many years, it didn't seem to be threatening. It was a curiosity. It was something that we kept from the children until they were old enough to experience it themselves. So we all knew it. Um, I think, uh, you know, my kids, friends who may have sleepovers and, and experienced some of the stuff knew it. But um, we didn't actively publicize it. Now, I will say that, and I, I told this story uh, the other night to one of the groups I was, I was um, speaking to, and there was uh, one large Christmas event I had at the house when I was in office for all of the county directors. And one of the directors, the county manager's wife, uh, apparently an Irish woman, has some type of spiritual gifts where she can sense uh, the presence of evil. And he told me at that time uh, that when his wife left our house, she was very upset and said, don't ever take me back to that house again. That house is bad. It's evil. And I, you know, I want you to stay out of it as well. So she sensed something was really amiss in the house. And a few years later, um, we found that out in a very real way hmm. so so you know for the uh people that don't really know much of the story or haven't read the book yet um let's start with with what happened your story um, what was the first activity or thing that happened that kind of stuck out for you that was kind of you know not normal well i think not normal is <clears throat> You know, I, I was attracted to this house since it's, you know, my earliest memories. From the time I could walk the streets by myself, you know, back in the 60s, maybe seven years old, um, I was always attracted to this house magnetically. There was just this, this fascination I had with it. Um, and I was drawn to it uh, consistently until when I looked to move back to Pittsburgh, my family and I, in 1988, my mother who was a former uh, retired was a retired real estate broker at the time uh, made the comment oh by the way your house is going on the market and I didn't need uh, any explanation she called it my house because she knew of my fascination with it so that was somewhat um, uh, foretelling at the time and later on we would find out the significance of my attraction to this house that in some way there was some foreordained plan that we accepted you know it's like mission impossible if you accept this mission <laughs> all record will be destroyed but uh, 
that, that we were some way um, guided to this house uh, to deal with this issue. And uh, I think I was, I was prepared in, in a way to do that uh, with my faith um, because we hear over and over again, uh, many people said, you know, we would have just, you know, packed up and left and left right away. And I think that's what the people who sold us the house were doing because they um, they acted in a rather, rather strange way when we were looking at the house. Uh, they took our first offer without any negotiations. They just wanted to sell the house and get out. Um, I uh, we we after after some things took place as the first two few times we were in the house viewing the house and making the deal closing the deal my wife and I both uh, just had an uneasy feeling and it led me to ask the owner um, the previous owner who I purchased it from is there anything wrong with this house and um, you would thought you know he, he would have thought you would think he would have thought right away I was talking about the roof or the furnace or you know the wiring, uh, but right away he keyed into what I meant and he said, "Oh no, you know, by the, we've actually had mass in the living room several times, uh, which I thought was strange. We weren't Catholic at the time, uh, but I do know the significance of Roman Catholic mass, and you know, unless it's in a matter of wartime or some special occasion, it's generally not performed or celebrated." outside of a church, certainly not something in somebody's living room, unless it's part of a cleansing process for spiritual infestation, which I would later find out as we had mass on every room floor of the house and multiple rooms more times than I could count. <laughs> uh, the first activity that we experienced that told us we were not alone in the house, so to speak, the first month we were in it, January of 1989, uh, just, you know, my wife and I, and we had four children at the time, four-year-old, three, two, and a newborn. Um, so they were all just little babies, little kids, and um, big, big three-story, turn-of-the-century Victorian, 10-foot, almost 10-foot ceilings, big spacious rooms, you know, right out of central casting, if you were going to, you know, create a uh, a house to have problems. I mean, they could film a movie. In, in, uh, they could film the movie about this story in the house, and it would be perfect. <laughs> so um, you walk in, and there's a large, large foyer, probably the size of most people's living rooms and normal houses big oaken staircase, impressive, goes up to a landing and then cuts back up again uh, to the second floor with a big wraparound balcony where you look down into the first floor. And under that staircase is a walk-in uh, closet, a coat closet, storage closet. You know, my wife kept some ba uh, boxes in there and the vacuum cleaner and so on, and obviously coats. And in, in the closet to the right, uh, there is a light. It looks like a gas light. The house had gas lights when it was first built, um, but there's an electric pool chain, or a little chain that there's a f globe that faces down towards the floor, ornamental globe with a pool chain, and you simply reach in, find the light. Uh, generally, your eyes haven't adjusted yet, and you can't really see it, and you kind of just reach in and feel for the chain and pull it. Well, 
after I, a few times of doing this, I noticed that I could never find the chain. <laughs> the chain would be not hanging where it should be. It would be wrapped around the top of the light or most often would be meticulously wrapped around the little screws that hold the crystal shade in. So that when you would try to either pull on the light, you couldn't find the chain, or if you did pull on it because it was wrapped around a screw, it wouldn't pull down. It was like something didn't want you to turn the light on in the closet. So after that happened a few times, obviously it was my wife's fault, and I said, I said, Please, Lisa, when you pull the chain to turn the light out, don't let it fly. Just don't pull it hard, let it fly, because what it does, it wraps around the light. I can't find it. can't find it when you reach in. And she said, well, you know, I've not done that, uh, and uh, I haven't even been in the closet today, so I really don't, for a few days, I, I don't really know what you're talking about. So um, the next day, we... we Okay, let's have an experiment. I'm leaving the chain hanging. Do not go in the closet today. And when I came home from work that evening, sure enough, the chain was wrapped around the top of the light. So with that relatively simple occurrence, we deduced that we were not in the house alone, uh, that this is a haunted house. There was something doing that. And then as the weeks passed, we began to experience, again, more the lights would be turned on when we came down in the morning. The radio would be playing. Water would be running in the, in the sink. Things like that weren't, again, threatening, but we knew, I knew, she knew, we didn't do it, and the kids certainly didn't do it. Um, so we just, okay, we have a haunted house. Um, then other things, uh, you know, verifications. I was speaking to a, a gentleman I worked with and told him the house I purchased. And um, he said, oh, you bought that haunted house. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, yeah, back in the 1930s, my father lived over the hill, and it was sitting empty in the late 30s. He and his friend uh, broke into the house, got in the house, and something chased them out of it. Now, whatever that meant, I'm not sure, but um, he said, yeah, you live in the haunted house. Um, then uh, that spring, as I was working out in the yard and planting flowers, my shovel hit a little metal box up towards the corner of the property at the end of the driveway. And I opened the box up. It was kind of like, a, it was, as I can recall, like a little sucrets throat lozenge box. And I opened up and I found rosary beads and a scapular. And I could tell from the look as, looks to the box, it had not been there that long. So I called the previous owner, asked him about it. He simply said, please just bury it and put it back right where you found it. Um, so with those incidents, it was probably only about six months. Uh, we absolutely knew we lived in a haunted house, but again, didn't seem to be ominous or dangerous. And for the number of years... Um, we didn't think it was, even though surreptitiously this thing was preparing uh, an attack and slowly, surreptitiously starting to affect us all mentally. Right. right. Uh, well, how well, long before it got to the point where it was more... When the battle started. So yeah, like how, how, how long, what was the... Because right now you're, you know, you're saying there's these little things going on, nothing to really... Um, worry you a lot 
Um, what was the, uh, when did it start getting uh, a little bit more? Ominous, more ominous. Yes, that activity, you know, and some of that activity I couldn't at that point right away attribute it to this demonic entity. Um, my children began to see it uh, as they were not, as, you know, they, they were not quite in their teens, still maybe eight, nine, ten years old. They were experienced, they're knocking, they would um, uh, wake up in bed at night and, and experience sleep paralysis where you can't move your limbs and you can't verbalize uh, even a, a sound. Um, the most dramatic thing um, that happened, there was, there was one particular bedroom in, in the front of the house that we would later come to discover that some pretty bad stuff took place in decades ago. And that was my son's, my oldest son. When we moved in, he was three. That was his bedroom. Um, after we were in the house a few weeks, my mother, who was Catholic, suggested, why don't you have the house blessed? Uh, so when the priest was blessing the house, he came to this room, and we were going through. It was a festive occasion, and he's throwing holy water around the praying prayers. He came to this room. It was my son's room. And as he, we went to enter the room, my son inexplicably, inex you know, um, couldn't explain it. He's three years old, bars the entry to the room, you know, puts his arms across, the, you know, the doorway and said, you can't come in this room. And, and he was as serious as you. You cannot come in my room. You can't come in this room. And it was just so odd that this little boy would challenge um, this priest to keep him out of that room. Now, later on, we would find out you know, this, this room had some real issues. And if it was the demonic entity that was, that was prompting him to do that, I believe it was. He later would have some serious mental issues from sleeping in that room. And at one point, in nine, eight years after we moved in to the house, uh, we were doing some remodeling to the master bedroom, and my wife and I made that bedroom our, our bedroom temporarily, and within a few months, her entire, entire personality changed. And here she is, um, you know, a woman in her early 30s uh, who was president of the local school board and uh, a great helpmate to me, had what amounted to out of the blue a nervous breakdown and ended up two weeks in a psychiatric ward of a hospital. Um, I look back on that now and absolutely attribute it to our moving into that room. Uh, and, you know, once we moved out of it, um, <laughs> not immediately, but, you know, she regained her senses and all the issues we had went away. Um, so there was a concerted effort from this thing to affect our, our children. It really went off after my boys. Um, and, and during the time, it really was active, both of them. You know, spent time in psychiatric hospitals, were cons constantly under um, uh, the care of doctors and medication, and it was just, it was terrible. Um, and again, going through all this, looking back on it now, we can see how it all came together and what this thing's design was, um, even before we knew 
of its intentions. Uh, now, in early 2000s is when it hit the fan, and uh, the paranormal activity um, was no longer a curiosity. It was dangerous, and it was continuous, and it was akin to a movie, you know, the Amityville Horror. And I knew at that point we got some, we have some serious, serious problems. And that's when I eventually turned to the Catholic Church. Again, I wasn't Catholic, um, but it's not like you can call up, you know, the Ghostbusters, and, you know, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. I wish I could have with their ray guns. Uh, you know, what do you do? And, um, you know, I, I went to the Catholic diocese, to the bishop. In fact, the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh, who was a friend of mine, who is a friend of mine, he's no longer mayor, but um, he went to the bishop for me and talked to him. And um, the bishop assigned priest, and, uh, and, and, and they laid out a, uh, a plan of attack, so to speak. I thought initially this would be something that could be taken care of, you know, like calling the exterminate, you know, they come and treat your house and it's done. Um, and I think sometimes that is the case, but in this case, it was more like the movie The Matrix. I was given the choice of taking the red pill or the blue pill. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can sell this house and get out, take your family, move, give it to someone else and hope, you know, it's okay with them, or you can stay and uh, we're, we'll work with you and help you, but this is not going to be easy. And they knew that right up front, that yeah. This, yeah. this activity was, was, was strong. Now, did, did you notice that it centered around any one figure in the family initially, or was it sort of um, everybody was having the issue? Or the uh, the person in in the family, uh, you know, other than you know that that episode of about a you know eight nine months or a year with my wife, uh, that it really focused in on from the very beginning was my son, my oldest son, Bobby. In fact, he's on the cover of the book. And uh, at one point in time, we actually thought that he was possessed. Uh, he was that bad. And uh, the priest did a series of tests on him that they, uh, to verify the presence of a, you know, a possession. Uh, and he failed it. I mean, he wasn't possessed, but he certainly was. Um, oppressed and targeted by this thing, um, he was his behavior, his countenance. Uh, he was uncontrollable. Um, we would have to call the police to come and you know take him to, take him away uh, to a psychiatric hospital. Um, he attacked me at one point um, seriously. Uh, it was it was really a traumatic event. Um, would you know punch holes in the walls? Would he? He was really uncontrollable, and then uh, it it began to affect my youngest son in the same way, and um, so yes, it really keyed on in on two of my sons. Now, some folks listening to me were saying, "Well, you know, you're dealing just with standard adolescent. Uh, you know, your kids had mental problems, uh, and and that's certainly something to um, a reasonable." Uh, assumption but when you put it in the context of the house and the context of the total story 
um, it does make sense that this behavior was directly a result of this demonic presence. And when you talk to my my sons today, uh, they'll even agree with you. You know, they're normal grown-ups, kids. Uh, my youngest son uh, doesn't have children yet, but, uh, um, you know, they look back on the same thing and they understand what happened. It was just a horrendous, horrendous experience. So when that started happening, did you ever think of... Uh just up and going, selling the house, moving, uh, getting away. Well, um, clearly that that's the that's the one of the the alternatives that was presented to me at the time. But I think also um, I realized, you know, through my my own through my own faith um, that excuse me <laughs> that uh, phone rang. Um, through my own faith, I was uh, prepared, in a way, to uh, at least understand that if this evil entity uh, was um, inhabiting our home, uh, and, and there are biblical examples of house infestations, even Jesus makes reference to one, uh, that it could be dealt with, that good uh, can overcome evil, uh, and I was convinced that with the help of the church, we could eventually deal with this issue, and I was willing to stay there uh, until we did. Now, after about a year of that hell that we went through, um, and uh, as I point out in the book, I was ready to give up. My family was ready to give up. I'm surprised they stayed with me in the house as long as they did. Uh, but we persevered, and after over uh, two and a half years, um, we um, prevailed. Yeah. So, well, then, um, now the church no. got involved, and and when did that happen? And uh, was it real helpful? I I don't know how to say it, but. Uh, um, I know what you're trying to ask. Let me answer the question, <laughs> because I'll say no. Um, the activity really started strong in late 2003. In fact, when my son attacked me, uh, and it was a vicious attack, um, and, and eventually it was two of my sons that were, were involved with it, and it was a great battle, and uh, I finally, I mean, my son was no kid at the time. I mean, he was... Um, Still a teenager, but he was actually bigger than I was, and it was a it was a it was a battle royale that took place, and the police eventually came, and I was arrested and taken out of the house in handcuffs uh, because my my son was unconscious on the floor, or at least feigning on being unconscious. So I end up, um, you know in the county jail where you know the folks that uh, ran the jail had recently worked for me and I'm all over the news and, and it, it was it was just a tough situation when I finally came back to the house because I was I was banned from the house for some time and eventually you know all the charges against me were dropped and so on and I came back to the house in late 2003 and that's when stuff really started getting crazy I think this entity didn't expect me to come back so um, after probably a month of 
of dealing with this is when I finally um, turned to the church, initially just turned to a particular priest. And um, once the priests got involved and continuing through that year, as they would come to the house and they would pray and they would celebrate mass and they would uh, bless the house and cleanse the house and do everything in that process, all it did was make it worse. The paranormal activity uh, would increase. It would it would um, move furniture. It would um, uh, turn pictures on the wall like it was like it was um, uh, having a temper tantrum, so to speak. And then eventually the um, uh, the attacks became uh, became physical. And as we began to employ more and more Catholic um, uh, symbols, symbologies, and Catholic procedures, like saying the rosary, um, it would break crucifixes in half, it would throw them on the floor, it would break rosary beads apart, it would mangle the crucifix, um, and, and things like that. And it made, uh, you know, it was very clear that anything, any holy, anything that represented, you know, you know holy objects, um, Catholic um, uh, rituals and so on, uh, it was anathema. It hated it. And uh, that increased as we, you know, applied more and more the Catholic procedures of, of cleansing, and then eventually it, it came to a full-fledged house exorcism. When, and when did that start? When, like, when did, when did you do that? That was, um, how far into it? Well, um, exorcism is, and, and, and the church um, went through all these procedures. And, and, and I could say, you know, for the first year and a half, um, we were working with this team of priests and going through all these cleansing rituals and, and, and they thought they could deal with it. We could deal with it uh, eventually by going through standard procedures. Um, to get an exorcist, to have an exorcism on a person and what I found out even on a house, there's a whole set of requirements that has to have to be met. Um, activity has to be documented for a period of time, um, has to be observed by multiple priests, and has, has to have outside verification, non-clerical, or I mean, non-religious verification. Um, say if someone's possessed, they have to be examined by, you know, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a doctor. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, we eventually who who, who do you who do you turn to? And um, they they found out of this research group at Penn State University in 2004 that had formed, um, and. Uh, I contacted them, and it was a group of students and a faculty advisor, and they were kind of ghostbusters, ghost hunters, uh, to come to our house and set up all their equipment, which was a lot, and verify paranormal activity. Now, this group went on to great fame uh, as Ryan Buell and his Paranormal State television show, but at the time that I dealt with them, and they had just formed as a group, this was this was one of their first, and I could say probably um, their most intense uh, experiences or cases. So they came twice in January and February of 2005. Um, did everything the church wanted them to do, and um, documented it. And then finally, um, they put in uh, process. Because they didn't have an exorcist. Many dioceses, even though they're supposed to have an exorcist on staff, didn't. So they turned to the Archdiocese of New York City, and there was an exorcist there, famous guy by the name of uh, Father James Labar. Uh, you know, has written books on it and so on. He's now deceased. Uh, and eventually, uh, James Labar came to the house in uh, the fall of 2005 and conducted a full-fledged exorcism. You know, old priest, young priest came, it was like the movie, 
and uh, um, so that's when that took place. And, and so, and so, so does the church so actually the church have, have um, uh, kind of a way of determining that it's a demon, or um, do, do they have some sort of criteria that they follow? Well, um, that's good. I mean, good question. And yes, they do. Um, as I've learned through this, that um, there there is somewhat of a hierarchy, hier- you know, hier- an order uh, of ranks um, uh, in in this demonic world. Uh, it's almost like a military structure, and you have lesser demons, the the poltergeist types that just kind of. Uh, or nuisance and cause havoc, or you know, um, uh, mischievous type spirits, and then you have the more serious, um, really uh, determined and strong um, entities that will inhabit a place and uh, are very difficult uh, to get rid of. And the, there are things and and um, ways that they manifest themselves. Um, and there's a pattern to it. Um, they'll, they'll, um, there's generally a very horrific smell that's associated with these powerful demonic entities. Um, they will attack, to an extent, uh, attack people with scratches and bites and psychological attacks. Um, and in extreme cases, even... Um, and, and this sounds the most bizarre, but this is what they do. They'll cause um, a blood-like substance to appear in houses, whether on the walls or on the floor, and they do that in a way to mark their space and mark their possession. And we experienced all of that. Um, so also, if they can resist um, the... Catholic, the procedures to expel them, and they continue to resi- resist it, that tells you that they're even that much more powerful, um, that they can resist. And that's what we were dealing with. Hmm. So, so now, the fluids that you say you deal with, like, you know, uh, what did you have? Like blood on the wall or fluids on the floor? Well, we, had, we had several different types. Initially, we had puddles on the floor. We would have this... Um, clear-looking liquid that it, it had a, a smell to it. My wife referred to it as, you know, it wasn't urine, it wasn't yellow, but she said it smelled like birth fluid, um, the, the smell of birth. And she obviously, having four children, knew that. Yeah. Um, eventually, it um, and, and that plays into the story as well later on. Um, we would find these puddles of, of reddish fluid that looked just like blood. Eventually, that fluid would turn would would be an orange, rusty uh, fluid. But again, it we didn't put it there. It was puddles on the hardwood floor, um, let, left in places for us to find it to see it. Um, but eventually, it would be splattered all over the walls uh, in certain parts of the house. It was actually, in, in, to mimic, to mimic um, 
uh, the priests blessing the house with holy water, and, and if you're familiar with that, they take holy water, and it will be sprinkled in droplets from some type of a vessel that they'll throw it, and it, and it applies drops of holy water on the, on the walls and throughout the house. Well, if you can imagine doing that, not with holy water, with, but with a vessel of blood-like substance, that's, it hit the wall in large droplets and ran down the walls in, um, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in a little stream, in drops. Um, we have pictures of it. Um, I took samples of it. I had it analyzed by several different laboratories. It wasn't blood, but it certainly looked like blood, and it had the effect, uh, the desired effect. It really freaked us out. When you had it analyzed, were you ever able to determine what it was? Well, uh, okay, I had it analyzed twice. Um, first, and again, not really understand, okay, w- what are you looking for here? So we take it to, I take it to one lab. I worked for an engineering company at the time, and they were always taking samples of, you know, things to a lab to be analyzed that appeared in houses and basements and so on. So I didn't realize this was an environmental lab. So what, what they analyzed it, and they came back with the conclusion. They said, we're not really sure what it is, but we can tell you it's nothing natural. It's not mold. It's not mildew. It's not anything that's living. Um, so there was no explanation that this stuff that all of a sudden appeared on the walls did so naturally um, for whatever reason. Then the next time I had this substance analyzed, um, I was a little bit better prepared. I, I took some of the fluid that had dried and was able to, uh, with a razor blade, scrape it off and kind of get a pure dried mixture that could really be analyzed. And I took it to another type of, you know, lab that really breaks down material um, and can tell you specifically, you know, what the individual components are. And they were befuddled by this, not because they didn't know the components. They just couldn't understand why this stuff was mixed together. I mean, there was carbohydrates and different things that, you know, would say that it was some kind of a food substance, maybe, you know, or or then there were chemicals like sulfur and other things that would say, well, this may be a cleaning product. Um, so they weren't able to come back and say, well, you know, this is red soda pop. Or, you know, this is uh, Mr. Clean or, you know, something to that effect. They said, we can tell you what, um, what, what, it's, what its components are. We can't tell you why or how they're all mixed together the way they are. And we certainly can't tell you how it got on your, you know, got applied within, you know, in your house. So um, that was it. You know, I, I, I took pictures of it. I had it analyzed. Um, and... Uh, uh, that's what happened. And, and quite often, I guess, now, so yeah. was there any sort of a smell that was associated with, with the demon or any sort yeah, of... When, a- I, when, I, when I was in its presence, when I was in its presence, um, it would have this very localized, almost like a pillar. It was like an invisible person or a person that that say maybe had very bad body odor or very bad, you know, bad breath. You only smell it when you're right next to them. It's not like they, it, the smell um, will, will permeate the whole room. Unlike, 
you know, air freshener or a bouquet of flowers or something. It was very localized, and it would move. So it smelled like a combination of burning rubber uh, and sulfur that was mixed together. The stink was so bad, it would actually, like, stay in your nostrils when you smelled it for an extended period of time. And, and I would follow this around various rooms that it occupied um, because I'd hit it with holy water. Uh, we'd act, I'd actually, you know, kind of battle it to try to get it to give up a particular room. Um, that was the way we, I, you know, in, in a way I say wrestled with it, not, not physically, even though it did harm me physically, but I would um, be in its presence all the time. And again, we're not just talking about a week or two. This was over months. So what other steps did you take um, to kind of battle this, as we'd say? Well, one, one of the most effective things that we found, because, you know, the priests came maybe every, every seven to ten days and to make things worse. <laughs> <laughs> Agitate it. <laughs> That's right, to make things worse. But, you know, I had to find ways of things that we could do you know, on a daily basis, to, you know, I wanted to, I, you know, th- I was angry. You know, after, after you get past the reality that this thing is there, and it really, you know, I, I can't say it's routine, but, you know, this is here, okay? Some people coming off the street, they'd be scared to death. Um, it's like I told my wife one day, well, if it wasn't for the, 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 the blood running down the walls, uh, things are not too bad <laughs> in the house. Um <laughs> So I would come up with ways or we'd discover ways how I could make this thing's existence in the house, you know, as bad as they were, it was making life for us. And I know and I knew that anything that had to do with the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross, um, didn't like crucifixes, it didn't like to hear about it, it didn't, you know, it, it just kind of drove it crazy. Um, and I'm not on a religious soapbox, but this is reality. It was upset. So, if you can recall, uh, back 10 years ago, there was a lot of attention about um, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, a very controversial movie about, you know, it was too violent and so on. Well, that was a representation of the passion of Jesus Christ. So we took that movie and in that particular room that, that I spoke of in the front of the house, second floor, uh, we put that movie on uh, and uh, on a, a DVD and put it on repeat and that movie played for almost seven months straight, nonstop, 24 hours a day until the CD player just plain wore out. <laughs> and we would come in the TV would be turned off, the DVD player would be turned off, the DVD would be taken out, we would find it on the floor. Uh, it clearly did not like that movie. And then at one point, my wife had the brilliant idea of taking a full-length mirror and placing it in front of the TV so that no matter where you were in the room, you would see what was being depicted. Um, and, and that just, you know, it, it was the, our way of pushing back. And um, in the spiritual world, it was a very strong um, maneuver that we, we used. After, after all of this, um, 
Did you ever find out what the history of the house was or any sort of past or where you think the demon sort of started? Where it came from, sure. Um, I really, the book, the book really starts with that and it ends with that. It starts, it gives you a piece of an occurrence which doesn't explain anything and then it goes through the book and in the very end I explain the story at the front of the book and it kind of tells you what you just asked and I'm confident we for a time thought that even though the house was had this infestation and a lot of bad things happened in the house through the through the decades that in some way the evil associated with the house was really attached to the land that the house was built on. And initially, you know, how, how do you find that out? Um, and this is a, a very historic area. Uh, Pittsburgh, um, you know, was the frontier of the United States after the Revolutionary War. Uh, British, prior to the war, did not permit settlement really west of Pittsburgh um, into Ohio or anything like, or Indiana, that was all Indian territory. And um, so after the Revolutionary War concluded and the United States government came to possess what was called the Northwest Territory, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, um, you had the Iroquois Federation and many Indian tribes there that thought that was their land, that was their country. Um, and they were not party to the Treaty of Paris and the new United States government, which had a lot of debts to pay, not only to suppliers of material and so on, but to individual soldiers who had fought in the revolution, they all of a sudden had all this land and they decided they were going to pay people in tracts of land. So you had so many parcels handed out to individuals and, uh, you know, in payment. So you had this flood of settlers in the late 1780s flooding through Pittsburgh into Ohio. And not too long after that, the Indians were not, the American Indians, Native Americans, were not happy with that. And thus you had um, the first big conflict this government was faced with it was called the Northwest Indian War and it was a very very uh, vicious and um, um, intense war initially the Indians the American Indians defeated all the American militias that were sent against them and they really terrorized the settlers who had come in and drove them all out and uh, Fort Pitt which is Pittsburgh today, was reactivated, and that was really the frontier uh, of the United States. So you had this war taking place, and the story I was eventually told, we have this several hundred-year-old oak tree in the front yard, and there was always a legend about this tree being a special tree, and nobody really knew the real story. It always had something to do with George Washington or the Revolutionary War, but no one could really tell for sure until I met a woman um, as I was writing the book who told me the story of the tree. 
And apparently what she, or what she said apparently happened was that during the beginning stages of, this, of space, stages of this war, there was a woman and her three daughters who were massacred on the land in Mau Mai front yard by a tribe of raiding Indians. And that was out of character. Usually women and children were always taken hostage. They were never killed. But in this war, they were killed because it was a war of terror. And uh, they were killed right there. Um, the uh, father was not home when it took place. He came home to find this grisly scene. One of his daughters lived to the next day and died. And he buried them right there and took a sapling oak tree and planted it at the grave as a memorial to his family. And that's the story of the oak tree. Now, after she tells me this story, which I thought, wow, you know, I got four people buried that were killed and murdered right in the front yard. I wanted some verification. Um, and, and very quickly, I, I did some research in the National Archives, the archives of the War Department, as it was called back then, and came across a handwritten letter that had been written in March of 1792 in the beginning of the war uh, from the commander of Fort Pitt to the Secretary of War, Henry Knox at the time. And it was a standard weekly report where he's saying, we don't have enough men, we don't have enough supplies, you got to send more, send more. And oh, by the way, things are getting so bad that this week it was reported that a woman and her three children were massacred by the Indians some distance from the fort, the husband being spared as he was not at home. Now, our house is on the main road that led to the fort, Brownsville Road, and it's uh, seven miles, a little over six, seven miles from the fort, and it played in exactly with the story that I was told. So then I subsequently hired a company called Ground Penetrating Radar, commercial company that has these sophisticated devices that can tell you about the ground and what's buried and so on and so forth. Uh, paid them a nice sum of money. They came, they analyzed my front yard in front of the tree and came back a, with a report that said that it showed all the signs of uh, being a um, uh, uh, a grave site. It was a horizontal area. I can't remember the exact width of it, like six or seven feet by 11 feet, um, where the ground in a perfect horizontal, you know, um, uh, horizontally, um, was disturbed at one point with four, uh, the remains uh, of four uh, objects uh, four to six feet down, uh, and had all the characteristics uh, of an old grave. So with that, with the story, with the letter, I came to, I think, a fairly, um, you know, solid conclusion that that story was true and that I had this um, event that took place in the front yard. Now, am I saying that the American Indians were the ones who were, you know, perpetrated this evil? Um, I'm not, because certainly enough evil was perpetrated upon them as well. But I do think, and again, the whole premise of the story is that evil exists apart from the evil intentions and deeds of human beings, it can cause people to do really heinous crimes. Uh, whether it's, you know, the whole nation of Germany and the Holocaust or 
you know, Charles Manson. Um, I believe that the evil that was associated with this massacre in some way attached itself to the land where the house was built on, and that was the origin of it. I think it makes sense. I think it's also interesting that for some unexplainable reason, the year or so after I moved in, I all of a sudden developed this extreme interest in um, Eastern Indian art uh, of that same time period and ended up filling the house with all these uh, prints and, and uh, lithographs and so on of, of pictures of American Indians from the Eastern um, regions of Pennsylvania and New York. Filled the house with it over a period of time. And uh, I, I think that was also just another way of, of, of a sign of, of what the, the initial cause of this evil uh, was and what we dealt with. Do you think there was something, um, when you said you always loved the house, you were always attracted to the house, and eventually you ended up buying in your later years, um, do you think you were attracted to it for a certain reason or meant to be there? Well, as, as we worked with the church and they had the, what can I say, the abilities of a certain older woman uh, who's the same one who told me the story of the, the killings in the front yard, and she's called a Catholic intuitive or a mystic that it has these special gifts that can tell what happened in the past and, and you know, just um, really um, amazing information that I was given during the process. I never knew she existed or was part of it until I began to write the book and it was revealed to me. Uh, but what she was able to tell us of what took place and I was able to verify so much of it. She told me things of, you know, what the house looked like inside, even down to what the wallpaper looked like, the layout of the rooms, um, uh, furniture, uh, and never have been in the house or even near the house. Um, she said that, yes, in fact, I was in some way chosen um, to be... Uh, a person who would one day be given uh, the opportunity or the choice or the task to deal with this strong evil uh, that was in this house. And I think not only affected the house, I think it affected the whole town. And I think the main purpose of it was that I would not only deal with it, but have the ability to articulate the story, to write the story, and the biggest task was to maneuver the publishing world and get the book published because it's a story that's important and I believe uh, is very relevant uh, to today's culture. Yeah. So, so where, do you, where do you find yourself now, um, now, now that it's passed? Or do you still own the house? Yes, we live in the house, and you know, that, that, that's another decision I, I had to make. Okay, so... Uh, even though we dealt with the issue, I, 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 you know, we had this big house. It's worth a lot of money. 
Um, my wife and I don't need this 7,500 square foot house anymore. We have another house that we'd like to, you know, retire to. But um, I had to make the decision that I published this book, uh, the likelihood that I'm probably never going to be able to sell this house. Um, but I, I did that um, because, again, I thought it was important that I had to tell this story. So um, we live in the house. You know, my, my personal beliefs have been, have been altered greatly. Uh, you know, I was an evangelical Christian. Again, that's perfectly legitimate. Uh, uh, but, but I, and, and, and I found out that, you know, all that Catholic tradition and ritual and hocus pocus all, uh, has real substance. And I was able and given the opportunity to experience the supernatural firsthand so that, you know, my faith has ceased to be faith. It's based on reality. And uh, I know stuff. I know God exists. I know the devil exists. I know angels and demons are all real. So I have a different perspective. It gives me a different view of life. And that's why I was really kind of obsessively uh, driven that, that I had to write this book and uh, take all of the notes that I kept during the process and convert them into a narrative and and tell the story. And one of the reasons I'm talking to you today, you know, is I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I, I need to tell this story. That's my, my mission. And, and how's and, the family and how is everybody doing now? Well, my, my family, my family is fine. Normal family. Um, I have five grandchildren. Um, uh, my oldest son, who was the focus and gave us, you know, fits and, you know, really we thought he was possessed at one point. Um, it's taken him time to recover from that. Um, he won't read the book, uh, but he certainly knows what's in it. Um, he's gone to great lengths to promote the book on Facebook and uh, has now taken to even going out to talk to groups on his own about what he experienced. Um, but I mean, it left scars. It left scars on me, you know, meant, well, not physical scars, but, you know, mental scars, um, on all of us. And, uh, but it's something that we understand, um, and we know this is all, this all happened and it's part of telling the story. Okay. Well, we're glad you did. Um, now, how can people get a hold of uh, you or a hold of, uh, do you have a website? Um, well, you know, the book is obviously the, the Demon of Brownsville Road. Um, we have a website, and we've had it for, you know, some time. It's called demonofbrownsville.com. Um, that website uh, links to our Facebook page, which I think is Demon of Brownsville as well. Uh, my son manages that. Uh, so that link is on the um, uh, is, is on the web page. Also, um, uh, to purchase it, you know, it's online. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Google Books. You know, really anyone that sells books has it, um, and it's in the bookstores uh, around Pittsburgh. Anyway, the the bookstores have really had a hard time keeping the book uh, in stock. It's really gone over, and, and, and I hope that it eventually will uh, garner the same attention uh, in other cities. I've been, been doing a lot of interviews across the country uh, like this on the radio and the telephone. Um, so uh, 
DemonOfBrownsville.com, The Demon of Brownsville Road is the book, uh, all major booksellers published by Penguin Random House, uh, Berkeley Books specifically, and um, uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. Okay, and we'll also post that on the website here for us and the, the radio, and uh, let everybody know. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate uh, the time, and I also uh, thank you for uh, getting me to set up Skype. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, baby! Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of the Talk Radio Network. I'll be back. 